Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome once more as we continue examining the question as to whether or not creation really happened and is truly a miracle and the Bible might really be believable, or whether it's strictly a myth, an old-time religious belief that has been shown to be utter nonsense by modern science and the proof that evolution is absolutely a fact. Most of the time that I was an evolutionist, I never really questioned it at all. I simply accepted the statements made by evolutionist scientists and pondered the interesting aspects of the theory, but the notion that it might be a flawed theory wasn't even in the question. And it shouldn't be a surprise that people think like that considering the types of claims that are made by evolutionists. Listen to this one. The evidence that all life, plants and animals, humans and fruit flies, evolve from a common ancestor by mutation and natural selection is beyond theory. It is a fact. Anyone who takes the time to read the evidence with an open mind will join the scientists and the well-educated. So, of course, the message here is, don't be ridiculed. It's a whole lot easier to buy the rhetoric and join scientists and well-educated. Don't be ignorant and doubt Darwin's tree of life. There are probably millions of statements like that floating around in cyberspace and in printed books and just all over the place on television, on the Discovery Channel, the Natural Geographic Channel, excuse me, the National Geographic Channel, etc. On yesterday's show, we looked a bit at some of the interesting aspects of this tree of life. The fact that the common single-rooted branching tree that's like the trees in the yard while still being presented to almost everybody in the public, is no longer believed by many, many well-educated evolutionists. And yesterday's show was an attempt to bring ourselves up to enough education to understand some of the immense problems in this whole theory. But let's step back for a moment and have a little bit of fun. I don't know if any of you out there, besides myself, remember the Farkle family of Laugh-In? You had a family presented with Mother and father both having dark hair, perfectly good vision, normal complexions, with a whole bunch of children, all of whom have red hair, lots of freckles, and wear glasses. And then you meet their friend and trusted neighbor, Ferd Burfel, who lives right next door, and he has red hair, lots of freckles, and wears glasses. So why was that funny? I mean, the obvious implication is that any fool looking at that set of people would immediately recognize all of those children are descended from Ferd Burfell, and he's been fooling around with his neighbor, Fanny Farkle. But is it really true that physical appearance, morphological similarity, to put it in more scientific-sounding terms, is really evidence of common ancestry, that similar-looking features and body plans imply that they were inherited. Well, suppose that we grabbed another neighbor of the Farkle family from down the street, and he was a very large Samoan wrestler who didn't look anything like the Farkles or any of the children at all. And then we got another neighbor 
who had just moved to the area from Africa, and he was a member of the Watusi tribe. He was seven feet tall, thin, and black. Again, didn't look anything like the Farkle children. But then we decided to do some DNA testing. And there were several different ways to do DNA testing, depending upon which aspects of the molecular evidence we compare. So we do DNA test one, and it shows the children are most closely related to the Samoan wrestler. We do DNA test two, and it shows the children are most closely related to the Watusi tribe member. We do DNA test three, and it shows the children are most closely related to their apparent father, Fred Farkle. So what do we do? What we have here is multiple sets of evidence, each of which claims to show who the ancestor, most closely related relative of these children is. Three different molecular tests and the physical appearance, and the results are all different. What should you conclude from that? Are the children descended from all those potential fathers? I don't think so. I think we're pretty sure that they have only one. Or is it possible to conclude that the similarities shown by the DNA evidence don't actually show common ancestry, nor does the morphological comparisons? In fact, suppose we brought in yet another neighbor from down the street who was left-handed and happened to have six fingers on his hand. And then we look more closely at the Farkle children, and they're all left-handed, and they have six fingers. So even morphologically, depending upon which characteristics you look at, you get a different answer as to who they're most closely related. Now that sounds ridiculous when I say it that way, doesn't it? The fact is, that's exactly what goes on in attempts to build Darwin's Tree of Life. There had always been problems using strictly morphological or appearance-based evidence. You could build multiple different trees depending upon which aspect of the appearance you gave the most emphasis to. This was always a conundrum. It was fully expected that once the genetic data was available from sequencing genomes to do comparisons, that this would resolve the issue the genetic data, or the molecular data as it's often called, was supposed to select from among the various possible comparisons, various trees that were derived from the morphological data. Sorry, that didn't happen. Instead, what happened was quite a surprise. Since we're told that all intelligent, open-minded persons will clearly see the overwhelming evidence for the fact of evolution, we're trying to educate ourselves a bit on some of the details so that we can join those educated people. In fact, we're looking a bit at the tree of life, and we just commented on the interesting problem that you can build multiple different contradictory trees depending upon what data you look at to compare organisms. Let me repeat, based just on morphology, physical appearance, and characteristics of the entire creature, there were multiple trees of life that could be built that were contradictory. It was hoped the genetic data would clear this up, but once that has become available, the problem has gotten worse. The genetic data is contradictory. There are multiple contradictory trees one could build from the genetic data, 
They contradict each other, and they contradict the morphology-based trees as well. Now, none of this stops evolutionists for overstating the evidence for universal common ancestry. That is, that all living things are descended from a common ancestor. For example, evolutionist biologist David Hillis from the University of Texas was speaking to the Texas State Board of Education in January 2009. He claimed to be one of the, quote, world's leading experts on the tree of life, and he later told the board there is, quote, overwhelming agreement correspondence as you go from protein to protein, DNA sequence to DNA sequence when constructing the evolutionary history using biological molecules. Was he telling the truth? Not even close. There are many scientific papers that have found contradictions, inconsistencies, and flat-out failures of the molecular data to provide a clear picture of phylogenetic history and common descent. So he's not telling the truth. Now, maybe he's simply uneducated, but he claims to be one of the world's leading experts. By the way, I forgot to mention, at discovery.org, there is a primer on the Tree of Life article, well worth reading, and I'm using that for some of today's show. But let's get back to world-leading expert Dr. Hillis. On the very day that he testified to the Texas School Board, the cover story in the journal New Scientific had a title, Why Darwin Was Wrong About the Tree of Life. And the article includes these statements. The problem was that different genes told contradictory evolutionary stories. The article observed that with the sequencing of the genes and proteins of various living organisms, the tree of life fell apart. Quote, For a long time, the Holy Grail was to build a tree of life, says Eric Baptiste, an evolutionary biologist. A few years ago, it looked as though the Grail was within reach, but today the project lies in tatters torn to pieces by an onslaught of negative evidence. Many biologists now argue that the tree concept is obsolete and needs to be discarded. We have no evidence at all that the tree of life is a reality, says Baptiste. That bombshell has even persuaded some that our fundamental view of biology needs to change. Now, does this sound anything like Dr. Hillis's statement that overwhelming agreement correspondence as you go from protein to protein, DNA sequence to DNA sequence. That statement is utter nonsense, and I don't for a second think Dr. Hillis is uneducated in the area of evolutionary biology. I think he's blatantly lying to the public. I would sort of like to be wrong, but it's hard to imagine he's unaware of all of this. This isn't new to anybody who's well-educated in this field. However, to a true evolutionary believer, there must be an explanation, and some evolutionists have actually said it's perfectly okay to deceive people, especially students, to get them to believe evolution by gaining their trust. If they happen to notice these minor inconsistencies later, they'll be fully brainwashed by that point, and it won't really be a problem. Now, keep in mind that from a biblical worldview, we should expect that there would be deception in the world because that is the tactic that Scripture describes for Satan and that his purpose is to lead people away from the truth and deceive them. Jesus said he is a liar and the father of lies, and when he is lying, he's speaking his native language. Keep that in mind as we consider these things. 
So my message to all of you listening is be skeptics, be critical thinkers. Do not take these pronouncements that are in the popular press at face value. Educate yourself a little bit. There's plenty of resources available. That's one of the purposes of this show, and there's some information at creationmythormiracle.com. The Discovery Institute also has a great deal of very useful information, as does creation.com and answersingenesis.org, etc. Resources are listed on my website, so you really don't have an excuse, if you're interested in this at all, to fail to educate yourself. The opportunity is there. Now, if you find yourself reacting emotionally to these ideas, if you're getting angry at me for simply saying these things, and you're convinced I must be a wacko liar, I would ask you to consider the possibility that you really don't want to see the details. That's where I was at when I was an evolutionist. I really didn't want to see information that made me challenge my atheist worldview. It made me uncomfortable. Okay, okay, so the tree of life in its simple view really doesn't match the data. So what? Well, listen to yesterday's show. It's available on my website where we talk in more detail about the implications of that. It actually completely undercuts evolutionary theory. But let's go on to something related to this that I think is actually funny. Dr. Hillis portrays himself as one of the world's leading experts on the tree of life and then proceeds to make completely inaccurate statements about it. Certainly most of the public knows who Richard Dawkins is. He's an extremely visible and vociferous atheist evolutionist and is portrayed as a real expert on this subject to everyone. Well, let's talk a bit about the notion of a universal common ancestor. That is the idea that all living things have descended from an original living cell. In fact, I'll talk about the last universal common ancestor, LUCA, L-U-C-A, and search for evidence of what that might be. Well, embedded within this whole concept is the idea that all living things have exactly the same genetic code. That's supposed to be a huge piece of evidence for this common ancestry of all life. In Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker, 1986, he claimed the genetic code is universal across all organisms on Earth. He called this near-conclusive proof that we're descended from a single common ancestor, and that would be the root of Darwin's universal tree of life. He continued in The Greatest Show on Earth in 2009, where he writes, The genetic code is universal, all but identical across animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, archaea, and viruses. The 64-word dictionary, by which three-letter DNA words are translated into 20 amino acids and one punctuation mark, which means start reading here or stop reading here, is the same 64-word dictionary wherever you look in the living kingdoms, then in parens, with one or two exceptions too minor to undermine the generalization. Now, that's a pretty adamant statement. Why is this important? Dawkins goes on. The reason is interesting. Any mutation in the genetic code itself, as opposed to mutations in the genes that it encodes, would have an instantly catastrophic effect, not just in one place, but throughout the whole organism. If any word of the 64-word dictionary changed its meaning so that it came to specify a different amino acid, 
Just about every protein in the body would instantaneously change, probably in many places along its length. Unlike an ordinary mutation, this would spell disaster. And Dawkins is absolutely correct about that. I don't know how many of you have a Kindle out there or some other ebook reader. I've got a Kindle and I have the app on several devices because I don't seem to be able to sit still without reading. Now, suppose I have a Kindle and I've got 1,500 books on it. Well, these books are all encoded in such a way that the Kindle program can read the books and display them to me, and I'm allowed to look at the pages and read them. Well, if I have a mutation that corrupts the contents of one page of one of these books, and if that mutation or corruption just changed one of the letters in a word to a different letter, I would still be able to read the book, but one of the words would now be misspelled, and it might actually have a different meaning, perhaps, by changing that letter. And you could have this type of mutation or corruption, and the overall mechanism would still work, although the content would be degraded. However, suppose that the mutation corrupted the algorithm in the Kindle itself. Then, trying to use a modified algorithm to decode all of those 1,500 Kindle books that are stored there would fail. None of them would be readable by me at all, and the entire device would have turned into an expensive doorstop. That's why Dawkins says a mutation or modification to the genetic code itself is disastrous. It would mean that all the information stored in the DNA is no longer usable because it's encoded with a different code. So it's very important that all living things have the same genetic code. Otherwise, how can we use the DNA from an ancestor? This is a critical concept. Well, does Dawkins know what he's talking about or not? There was a fascinating event that occurred, and it's written up in a blog at evolutionnews.org titled Venter versus Dawkins on the Tree of Life and Another Dawkins Whopper. All right, so what happened? There was a science forum held, and there's a link to this in the blog at evolutionnews.org. The science forum was held at Arizona State University, and it was a panel discussion, and the topic was, what is life? And most of the panelists agreed that all organisms on Earth represent a single kind of life because we're all descended from that LUCA, that last universal common ancestor. Well, on that panel was Craig Venter, who is a true scientist with laboratory experience and expertise in sequencing genomes. He's known for being one of the first to sequence the human genome and for creating the first cell with a synthetic genome. He's actually an expert in the operational science related to examining what the genome is and how it really works. And unlike the other panelists, Craig Venter disagreed that there's only one kind of life. He said, quote, I'm not so sanguine as some of my colleagues here that there's only one life form on this planet, we have a lot of different types of metabolism, different organisms. Then he turned to physicist Paul Davies on his right and said, I wouldn't call you the same life form as the one we have that lives in pH 12 base, which would dissolve your skin if we dropped you in it. Davies said, well, I've got the same genetic code. We'll have a common ancestor. Venter replied, you don't have the same genetic code. In fact, the mycoplasmas 
use a different genetic code that would not work in your cells. So there's a lot of variations on the theme. Here Davies, a bit of alarm, interrupts Venter. But you're not saying it belongs to a different tree of life for me, are you? Venter responded, quote, The tree of life is an artifact of some early scientific studies that aren't really holding up, so there is not a tree of life, end quote precisely what we've been educating ourselves about on this episode and the previous one. Now, the reason the genetics from mycoplasma would not work in a human is it uses a different code. It's encoded differently, and the algorithm in human cells attempting to decode it would fail to work properly. It simply cannot be used. And here's Dawkins' comments. I'm intrigued, replies Dawkins, at Craig saying that the tree of life is a fiction. I mean, the DNA code of all creatures that we have ever looked at is all but identical. Now, he was just told by Venter that mycoplasma uses a different DNA that won't work. But Dawkins is undaunted. Surely that means, he asks Venter, that we're all related, doesn't it? Now, it appears from the video that Venter only smiles and doesn't even attempt to reply again. Okay, so who's right? Dawkins, who's incredibly popular and writes all those best-selling books and promotes himself as an expert and tells you that every intelligent person believes in evolution? Or Venter, who works in the lab and invents things and founds companies and sequences genome and does the actual operational science work? Well, it's pretty easy to tell. There's a link from the blog at Evolution News to the compilation of the various genetic codes that have been discovered. Now, this is different codes. When the blog was written at Evolution News two years ago, there were 17 different genetic codes. Right now, based on April 30th, 2013 date is the last update, there are now 19 different genetic codes listed. Venter is correct. Dawkins is wrong, and the evidence for the last universal common ancestor doesn't exist. Now, remember, as we discussed on yesterday's show, the new non-tree, but the web of life, doesn't show a single root. It shows multiple roots, sort of an undefined, vague beginning of things from this communal set of cells. Well, it must be the case that that original life had at least 19 different incompatible genetic codes within it. And the number keeps growing. The more we examine, the more we find different codes. But I'd always been told the universality of the genetic code was this gigantic evidence for evolution. And now we find out there is no universal genetic code. There are 19 of them and counting. Well, since the codes are incompatible, that would mean that creatures with a different genetic code must reproduce within their kind, precisely as the Genesis creation account describes it. In fact, even those who share a common genetic code reproduce within their kind because the content of a human cell and a human genome is so vastly different than, say, a chimp cell and a chimp genome that we are truly a different kind of creature. God created life with different kinds reproducing after their own kind, but he also intended for that life to diversify, spread out, and fill the earth. And being an intelligent creator, it isn't surprising that there is phenomenal diversity. 
As we look closely, it appears creatures are designed to adapt to environment and to provide an array of diversity while still remaining within their kind. The fact is, there is no genetic data or any other type of data that proves the biblical creation account can't be true. The more we look at it, the more we learn, the more compatible it becomes with what we're told in Genesis. So any open-minded person who is seeking to understand what might be true has got to be aware that you will be misled about the evidence for evolution and how rock-solid it is by popular science, but you have many opportunities to determine where the data really leads. And don't forget, truth is a fundamental aspect of God. Jesus said, I am the truth. If you seek that truth, you will find him. See creationmythormiracle.com for more info. (laughs) 